Welcome back, students. I am Professor Castor. Welcome to the next installment of the Lore of Iron Kingdoms, brought to you by the fantastic writers of Privateer Press. Today, as we discussed previously, I will be starting up our first Hordes faction, or things that are not robotic, things that are wild and untamed. And the first Hordes faction we'll be looking at today is the Circle of Orboros. Since before the dawn of civilization, the mysterious black-clad druids of the Circle of Oberos have plotted and schemed hidden among the shadows of the wild places where most fear to tread. Worshippers of the ancient entity known as Oberos, the druids of the Circle have brought both feral beasts and savage tribes under their sway in order to achieve their enigmatic goals. The most numerous of these tribes are the Wolfsworn, men and women who have pledged their lives to the service of the black-clad in exchange for power and protection. In addition to the Wolfsworn, the Circle also counts more ancient and primitive warriors, such as the Savage Tharn, whose dedication to the Devourer Worm grants them the ability to transform into terrifying avatars of their god of predation. Along these oath-bound warriors prowl some of the most ferocious creatures that stalk the wilds of the Iron Kingdoms. From bounding satyrs to supernatural warp wolves, to agile griffins and howling Arguses, and the war beasts available to the Circle of Orbros are as varied as they are deadly. Supplementing these mighty beasts, the black-clad create constructs of stone and wood that stand as silent guardians and protectors of their sacred places. And they mean silent, because uh, you wouldn't know if you walked into one of their sacred places until you start hearing stones move. Bringing together these wild predators and savage hunters are the warlocks of the Circle. These calculating and potent druids can tap into the immeasurable power that flows just below the surface of Cain. Each warlock wields the forces of the natural world in their own particular manner. Whether it is Masar, the desert walker who hammers his foes with withering heat in the desert sun, or Kruger, the storm lord, who unleashes the elemental wrath of hurricanes and lightnings, or Morvana, the dawn shadow, who has mastered the art of drawing on the natural cycles of life and death. Fueled by the rage of their primal war beast, these powers of the druid know nearly no equal. Within its pages, this book, also known to Privateer Press as the Forces of Hordes, Circle of Oberos Command, gives you an extensive look at the background of the circle and access to all the inscrutable warlocks and wild war beasts, as well as a range of units, solos, and battle engines who support them. Born of natural savagery and raised in the world where only the strong thrive, the warlocks, warriors, and warbeasts of the Circle of Oberos stand ready to set loose the unstoppable power of the wilds upon their enemies. And that concludes the foreword of this book. Alrighty, let's start with Chapter 1, The Fighting Forces of the Circle of Oberos, Elemental Destruction and Primal Rage. We're going to be going over a bit of the history and each of the major unit types in this particular army. Let's begin. The product of thousands of years of coordinated effort to master nature's power, the Circle of Oberos is the most ancient, unbroken human organization extant in the Western Amoran. Its true goals are hidden behind layers of secrets. Few outside its inner cabal suspect it is anything but a disorganized group of enigmatic, if individual, potent black-clad druids and their personal armies. Some of the wilds look to druids to the, of the Circle as prophets or priests of the Devourer Worm, but the truth is more complicated. While the Blackclads draw supernatural power from the chaos embodied by the Devourer, they have a complex philosophy and an approach to the natural world that is all their own. The Blackclads believe both the Worm and Donia are specific manifestations of a single primal and all-pervasive natural entity 
they call Oberos. The nature of Oberos. According to the circle, the worm is the destructive consciousness of the primal Oberos and the aspect of this greater being that is most active, aware, and violent. In the worm is concentrated most of the raw mystical power of Oberos, gathered on Cain and flowing into Urcane. The blackclads draw on the power of the worm through subterranean arteries they call ley lines. These serve as a circulatory system of Oberos. They wield their power to ensure the worm remains distracted by its eternal war in the Urcane against Meneth, the creator of mankind, and the patron of civilization. Though the worm is a wellspring of power they wield, it is a terrifying force whose attention they do not wish to draw. If the worm can be equated to the will of Orbros, Cain itself is the body and the corporeal intangible being whose health affects the flow of energies through the ley lines. These conduits are vital to the power of the order, and the black clad work tirelessly to ensure the ley line system remains strong. Sounds like somebody's trying to keep somebody from waking up. Also, side note, worm is spelled W-U-R-M, not W-O-R-M, just so we can be clear on that. The energies flowing through the ley lines can become choked by civilization. Anything that disrupts the course of rivers and the integrity of the mountain and hills or the growth cycles of forest injures Orbros. When its body becomes too riddled with wounds left by the civilization, the devourer feels its weakening condition, which risks it returning to the world and unleashing devastation across the face of Cain. Recent years have seen several close calls as conflict with the Trollkin, with the Legion of Everblight, and even with the Circle's membership prompted supernatural clashes on a scale beyond anything the Order has ever experienced. Thus far, the Circle of Orboros has narrowly managed to avoid disaster. These minor successes do not change the fact that the Order believes ultimate destruction to be inevitable. Even without the spread of the Dragonblight, and the renegade blacklads conspiring to aid the return of the worm, the inexorable spread of civilization guarantees the circle will fail in its long-term goals. Cities and towns increasingly push back the natural world, and even incessant warfare between nations has done little to diminish mankind's population. Facing this, the blacklads insist violence on any scale against civilization is justified. Were all the great kingdoms shattered and all their cities turned to rubble, would not be enough to reverse this imbalance. Blacklads focus on limiting civilizations wherever possible, as well as battling any other threats to the body of Orboros, such as the Blight of the Dragon. The scope of this work is vast, but even the fact that the Circle's goals are unachievable do not deter the Druids from making their attempt. Operating in scattered groups, the Blacklads have created a network of sacred sites to channel the natural powers of the Ley Lines. They use this network for communication and to transport themselves instantly across vast distances. Maintaining the sites has sometimes required them to go to war with groups who have defiled them. When roused to battle, the Circle of Oberos is unsurpassed at exploiting the terrain to their advantage, striking swiftly and unexpectedly across great distances and invoking destructive elemental power. Thunder rolls forth from storms by their will, stones rise from the earth with a gesture, and terrifying beasts rage at their command. Blackclads have deserved reputation for callousness towards slaughter, plague, and famine, but their larger work is bent towards forestalling far greater destruction. They ultimately seek to preserve a place for humanity on Cain. The Blackclads, however, are few. To wage their wars and protect their holdings, they have had to establish many alliances with people of the wilds. As much as possible, they avoid risking their own lives, preferring instead to sacrifice the many minions, pawns, 
and vassals in their service. Those loyal to the Black Lads inhabit every sizable forest, mountain range, swamp, desert, and other wild places in western Amoran. Among the families in these remote corners are some that stand ready to lend their strength bound to the druids by ancient ties. Barbaric people have willingly allied with the circle and the black clads manipulate them to fight on their behalf. When the circle gathers for war, it does so as it has for millennia, at the head of its howling hordes that would smash the cities of man and cast their inhabitants into an everlasting dark age. Though its agents, allies, and raw power, the Circle wields unparalleled might in the wilds. The Blacklads prefer to move unseen, working through emissaries, manipulation, and implied threats. Though the organization can quickly bring its own strength to bear, raising armies among its allies can take time, careful negotiation, and invocation of ancient packs. The Circle is at its strongest when the agents have time to meticulously prepare their plans. I suppose when you're putting together an army of forest critters and barbarians it does take a bit of time to get everybody in the same spot at the same time next chapter averting apocalypse given its unusual allies and its generally fractious nature it is no accident the two incidences that caused the circle of Oros to come closest to utter failure have been connected to those inside their own ranks the year 609 ar was especially dire for both the circle and for kane itself as events conspired to bring Western Amoran to the brink of annihilation not once, but twice. One of these incidences involved Kruger the Stormwrath, the self-designated Stormlord who entered into a reckless, bold conspiracy with several dragons starting at 607 AR. Though Kruger's goals were aligned with the orders, he aimed to bring a swift and decisive end to the Legion of Everblight, one of the greatest threats to the Blacklad. His means were considered reckless in the extreme, he sought to stir the dragons to confrontation. Going against direct orders of all three ruling omnipotents, Kruger stole artifacts from the Order and made contact with the Blightagast, the greatest of Torak, the Dragonfather's prodigy. In coordination with the dragon, Kruger orchestrated a scheme to strategically corrupt the Leyline network with Blight, enabling the ritual whereby Kruger could reveal the location of Everlight's warlocks. Once the agents were exposed, the dragons, allied with Blightergast, would consume them. This scheme came to fruition even as other members of the Order were trying to foil the attempt by Crix to recover the disembodied Ethank or Torak. Boulder had foreseen the disaster that would unfold should the Draconic Stone fall into Everblight's hands, as seemed the most likely outcome at the time. Both of these efforts just thwart Everbyte's proceeds, but eventually came to be a cross-purposes. Kruger's ritual to reveal the warlocks of Everblight also uncovered the presence of this Ethank, which had been seized by Signar as it is being moved through the Wormwall Mountains. As a result, two of the dragons dedicated to the effort to destroy Everblight were distracted from their purpose and attempted to seize the Ethank instead, throwing Kruger's plans into shambles. Torak flew to the mainland from Crix for the first time in 16 centuries to confront his prodigy. By the end of this clash over Signar, Torak was injured but had consumed one of his spawn. Blightergast had devoured the disembodied Ethank, and great swaths of Warmwall Mountain had been blighted and set ablaze. Kruger insisted that, though his efforts did not proceed as planned, the outcome still benefited the Order because multiple dragons had been weakened and left with lasting wounds, including Torak. The other leaders of the Order conceded that the thing might have gone worse, 
but any gain from this clash was difficult to measure. Had Torah succeeded in defeating the rest of his prodigy, it would have resulted in the ultimate unraveling of all the circle's efforts. Even as the clash was brewing, most of the order was dealing with another threat arising from the efforts of Wormwood, the Tree of Fate. The alliance between Circle of Obros and this ancient embodiment of the Devourer Worm has always been a complicated one. As Wormwood seeks to see the worm return to Cain and civilization utterly destroyed, a goal the Circle stands united against, Wormwood has rarely acted directly in pursuit of this goal, however. And in their battles against encroaching civilization, the Circle has found the Tree of Fate a powerful and useful ally. In 609 AR, Wormwood nearly succeeded in summoning the worm. This event was arranged by awakening the Great Axe, Rathrock, the artifact also known as the World Ender. While the ley lines of the Eastern Dominion were badly damaged and weakened, the strain of the ley line network in this region was considerable. In recent years, it had been used to conduct numerous extraordinary rituals, including widespread teleportation, the invocation of powerful earthquakes, Wormwood increased this strain as it manipulated tribes of Gatormen and Faro to attack the newly established Tolkien communities in the northern Bloodstone Marches, while at the same time directing the Tharn King Cromac, the Ravenous, to seek Rathrock there. For a tree, it sure does a lot of things. The war between Tolkien, Faro, and Gatormen led to the ascension of the Gatormen warlock Bloody Barnabas as the god of slaughter, becoming essentially a reptilian avatar of the worm on Cain. The barrier between Cain and Urcain weakened as Rathrock awakened and Bartimus completed his own rite, opening the portal to bring the Devourer Worm into the world. This summoning was facilitated by the existing hole in reality attached to the scorn-named Voidseer Mordekar. Compelled by unseen forces to observe the battle, Mordekar was obliterated when the worm manifested. Forewarned by unusual activity across the ley lines, the three omnipotents gathered to prevent this catastrophe. While some of the leaders of the circle might have welcomed the sight of the worm ravaging the cities of mankind, they knew disaster would not stop there. It was imperative to banish the worm. Mighty as the omnipotents are, they would have failed in their task if not for an unexpected supernatural aid from the Trollkin Horlock Doomshaper, known as the Shaman of the Gnarls. Sometimes I think the druids cause their own problems just to try to have other druids solve their own problems. Seems to be a theme here. Each of those involved had their own reasons to prevent the ingress of the worm, and the greatest disaster to threaten Cain was forestalled. In the process, Rathrock was seized from the Trollkin by Cromac the Ravenous, who has kept his prize and declared himself champion of the worm. For now, the leaders of the Order have allowed him his this right, not eager to provoke Wormwood or the Tharn King. Most of the Circle's actions in the last two years have been aimed at repairing and readdressing the damage incurred by these two related events. The damage to the ley lines was extensive and nearly catastrophic, leaving the Order vulnerable to its enemies. The work of every able-bodied wayfarer and master of stone has since been dedicated to restoring sacred sites damaged in the conflict or erecting new ones where the channels have shifted and changed. Other druids have gone forth beyond the old territories to secure new sites of power. Fortunately for the druids, the scope of their vulnerability is not well known, and their enemies have been similarly weakened. Well, I suppose if nobody even knows you exist, nobody can really see that you're weak. Next chapter, Dominions of the Circle of Oberos. Though its numbers are small and the scope of Circle of Oberos is far-reaching, 
All of the wilderness of Cain can be said to be within the Black Lad's purview. Though as yet their domain does not extend much beyond Western Amoran, the powers of Black Lad allow them to cross vast distances in a blink of an eye. The Circle's ability to gather intelligence and dispatch its agents to where they are most needed gives it a responsiveness and flexibility that is hard to match. In every corner of the wilds are sacred sites protected by the Blackclads and their allies. The only regions the Circle sees as being outside its sphere of influence are those in which it is impossible for them to maintain a presence. Places like the main island of Crix, inevocably blighted by Toric, and the depths of the Abyss. While the Order is largely focused on Western Amorn, some members push to the frontiers of their domain to explore new territories. Tentative efforts have been made to connect the ley lines beyond the Bloodstone Marches and to the far-off lands like the southern continent of Zoo. Though these regions have yet to be fully integrated into the ley line network, recent stress on the ley lines have prompted the Circle's leaders to escalate efforts to expand into these new regions. The Circle of Obros has divided Western Morn into three large regions, the Northern Dominion, the Eastern Dominion, and the Southern Dominion. The Northern Dominion includes all of Kodor and its vast mountain and forests, as well as the Northern Ordic Hills, the Ruluk Mountains, and the Howling Waste. The Eastern Dominion is an expansive, if mostly uninhabited, region outside of the Protectorate of Meneth, including the Bloodstone Deserts, the Bloodstone Marches, the Blacklad River, and its Ivorans, the Rotten Horn, and the Iosin Peaks. The Southern Dominion covers the majority of Signar and beyond, including the Narls and the Bogenholten Ord, the Broken Coast and its islands, and the Wormwall Mountains. Each of these dominions fall under the oversight of one of the Order's omnipotents, and is divided into smaller territories overseen by lower-ranking druids. The allocation of these territories forms the basis of the convoluted hierarchy of Circle of Oberos. Despite its territorial claims, the Circle does not have an actual power or authority over every square mile of these dominions. The druids focus on the untamed wilderness regions, but also include in their purview areas encompassed by powerful nations and the domains of many hostile competing groups, some more overtly powerful than the Circle of Oberos. The Blackclads have direct control over small pockets of these territories, usually centered on well-protected sacred sites, secluded villages, and other wilderness places. Most of their holdings relate to the ley line networks they have established, though these shifts and changes over time, especially after major or supernatural upheavals. To protect the vast wilderness territories they oversee, Blackclads must rely on the connections they have forged with the uncivilized people inhabiting such places. For each Blackclad, there are hundreds of allies and minions serving them as warriors and pawns. I can see why they get disorganized a lot. Next chapter, Hierarchy and Territorial Responsibilities. Although the Circle has many alliances and minions serving its interests, the only true members of the organization are the Blacklads themselves. These are echelons of power, authority, and knowledge within their ranks, and the members must earn advancement to be entrusted with deeper mysteries and perhaps the oversight of territories. In ascending order, black-clad ranks are Wilder, Warder, Overseer, Potent, and Omnipotent. These ranks have direct bearing on the individual's responsibilities, and the gulf between successive ranks is vast. All power in the Circle of Oberos flows downward from the three ruling Omnipotents who divide the Order's territories among themselves and safeguard its deepest secrets. 
low-ranking druids are given tasks, responsibilities, and territories as a means of managing the Order's far-flung assets. In theory, the Omnipotents have absolute power of their territories, but, but in reality, matters are more complex. The political machinations within the Circle are many-layered and treacherous. Each rank designates the degree of trust, autonomy, and authority a black clad has been afforded. Wilders have very few responsibilities other than to learn and obey. They have no autonomy and are accountable for only the very narrow tasks given to them by their mentors. Druids who survive their training as wilders and prove themselves over several years earn promotions to warder. This rank is bestowed by Druid's mentor based on performance, initiative, and growing skill. Fundamentally, a warder's primary function is to do whatever his immediate superior asks, but he must also exercise initiative and sound judgment in the execution of those duties. The warder's task might include short-term missions like rooting out a pernicious enemy or gathering intelligence, or longer-term duties such as aiding in the training of war beasts, constructing wolves, or watching over specific regions. Initially, a wilder or newly promoted warder answers only to a single mentor, but most druids are required to balance multiple priorities, including the orders from more than one superior. Sometimes the mentor will loan a subordinate to another black clad as part of a complex exchange of favors common within the order. Such arrangements benefit the junior druid as well. A promotion to higher rank requires having more than one advocate within the hierarchy. Higher ranking leaders frequently approach black clads who are not their immediate subordinate to make demands on them. The black lad who is already on a mission is under no obligation to agree to outside requests. But such an opportunity to forge new alliances might not come again if refused. These favors are one of the primary ways the junior druid can begin to accumulate political power in the hierarchy. And so those with ambition will try to find a way to fulfill all tasks given to them if possible. Senior druids have long memories, especially regarding those who have failed or refused to them in the time of need. Each black lad must learn often through difficult experience how to prioritize tasks given them by separate and equally demanding masters. Ambitious druids quickly realize the only way to advance is to demonstrate initiative. Once a senior druid is convinced of the capabilities of a junior blackclad, he can create a lasting bond by offering a portion of his territories. This is a form of feudalism. The blackclad is expected to carefully manage territories entrusted to him by his superior. Accumulating and maintaining multiple territories is necessary for a druid to be entrusted with promotions to overseer. Such a promotion requires the supporting testimony of two or more overseers who have worked closely with the candidate, as well as the authorization of two or more potents. Overseers are vital links for the circle's chain of command, trusted to undertake missions requiring considerable coordination and personal power. They are responsible for sacred sites within the patchwork of their territories and must ensure their energies contribute to the leyline network. They must confront and eliminate any enemies that threaten the leylines or the standing stones controlling their flows. The regional territories of an overseer are generally larger than a lone blackclad can patrol, even with the aid of supernatural teleportation. This duty falls to the subordinate blackclad or the locals who can act as druids' eyes and ears, and in time of threat, as expendable warriors. 
Overseers are also expected to contribute to the identification, recovery, raising, and mentoring of new wilders. As well, an overseer with growing territories may seek out talented warders to watch over portions of their domain, reinforcing the chain of fealty and command. The accomplishments of a junior druid reflects on those they serve, so it is advantageous to have subordinates who distinguish themselves. Ambitious overseers will broaden connections with other senior druids in the hope of continuing to cement their value in the organization. Not all overseers supervise territories, though. Most do. Some capable druids earn acclaim through other means, such as leading strike forces into battle or constructing wolds. Elevation from overseer to potent is an even greater milestone. Each potent is a poisoned master of elemental forces and keeper of large territories scattered across multiple dominions. As with promotion from warder to overseer, an overseer can be raised to potent only if at least two of the ruling omnipotents agreed to the promotion is warranted. Potents are jealous of their individual power and often resent the rise of others to that rank. Each represents a potential rival with whom they must share territories, subordinates, and authorities. It looks like there's a side note for significant potents in the Circle of Oboros at the writing of this book, unless it hasn't been updated in a few years, but we will see. Boulder of Stone Soul, Bragdus Thoral of Rune Carver, Donovas of Warnrock, Kruger the Stormlord, Levine the Way Opener, Morvana the Dawn Shadow, Rosterly the Horn Clawed, Civil the Salt Wind, Tamora the Long Shadow, Vasquez the Knot Keeper, and Werner the Nightbrainer. I'm sure their surname probably is more from the Druid Order than, you know, a standard name. Back to the writing. The influence and authority of the potents make it difficult for lower ranking druids to refuse their orders, even if the requesting potent is at odds with the druid's mentor or other superiors. Amnities and even open conflict between druids at this rank is common. Generally, members of the order vie with another through subtle means, such as poaching subordinates or persuading the leaders of tribal warriors to the rival's territory to serve them instead. Bitter rivalries between the black-clad can last for decades. The omnipotents intervene if such conflicts threaten the larger goal. Though some degree of competition and even violence is tolerated, it is considered healthy since it fosters adaptability and culls the weak. Potents govern their diverse territories by leveraging personal abilities, charisma, bargains, bribes, favors, and old alliances because they are a representation of the authority entrusted to them by their feudal masters. Their territories are vast, but not equal. Some druids even seek to expand their holdings by reclaiming territories lost to the order. At the top of the circle's hierarchy are the three omnipotents, Massar, the Desert Walker of the Eastern Domain, Dalekkav, the Scourging Wind of the Northern Domain, and Lortus, the Watcher of the Southern Domain. These figures inspire dread and awe in the rest of the order, for they safeguard the Circle's most terrible secrets and mystical rites. They hold the legacy of the sworn pacts made by the birth of the Order, with primordial supernatural powers linked to the Devourer Worm. Omnipotents hold their positions for life. Should one perish, those who remain call a grand conclave to select a successor from among the attending potents. The Omnipotents know their subordinates well and generally have already determined who will be the next to rise. Lordus is the most recently elevated of the Omnipotents, 
having taken the place of Ergonos in 606AR after he was slain by, by Trokan forces led by Chief Madrak Ironhide and Horlocked Doomshaper. Their unique sensitivity and connection to the Leyline network allows Omnipotence to extend their awareness throughout their dominions. Little of import transpires in the wilderness of Western Amorn without coming to their attention. The full scope of the Omnipotence authority over their subordinates is reliant on their personal power and charisma as well as the willingness of those they command to heed their dictates. This power structure sometimes requires Omnipotence to make examples of those who defy them reinforcing their fearsome reputation. Although the Omnipotents expect their commands to be obeyed, the Circle has long prioritized successful results over adherence to precise letters of order. Those who flagrantly disobey do risk reprisal from on high, or more subtly consequences such as being sent away to a far corners of Amorin on dangerous missions. For a druid, the key to surviving and rising through the hierarchy is to become an asset too valuable to be easily replaced. By the time the druid reaches the level of potent, he becomes difficult to reprimand or control. This was demonstrated recently by Kruger the Stormlord, who retained his position even after defying all three omnipotents, a feat possible only because of his growing power and an alliance with ancient Tree of Fate. The Secrets of the Circle of Oberos Any organization with the history as long as Circle of Oberos will have its share of secrets. Only its ranking leaders fully understand the Order's inner workings, the extent of its hidden and shifting alliances, its invisible networks of ley lines, and how these separate elements come together as a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. Kind of strange we're actually reading about some of its largest secrets, isn't it? Almost like Privateer Press has a spy in the Circle of Oberos. A high-ranking spy. Yeah. Who knows? The cost of protecting Orboros. For generations, the Blacklads have worked to keep the consciousness of Orboros, the Devourer Worm, focused on the battles in the Hurricane. To this end, they have kept the life's blood of Orboros flowing through its mystical networks while attempting to limit the spread of civilization. Without their work, the arteries of Orboros would become clogged, and the Worm would return to Cain, and an apocalypse would ensue. The Druids of the Circle are convinced that any extreme violence is justified in their campaign against the rampant civilization. The senior members of the Order will sacrifice any ally or resource to take in any action, no matter how drastic, to attain their goals. Some of their methods may seem atrocious or barbaric to the morality of civilized humanity, but the Order's perspective is eminently pragmatic. Mastering the Ley Lines to the circle, the vital rivers of natural power known as ley lines are the veins and arteries of Cain. The power within them is the lifeblood of Oboros himself, and the ley lines follow natural geographic features, moving along the course of great rivers and the spines of mountain ranges. Among the web of ley lines are conjunctions, or nodes of power, which the druids of the circle of Oboros continually work to identify, control, and utilize. The Blackclads have developed methods to amplify and harness the powers of these ley lines. For centuries they have erected stone columns above ground along these paths. The ignorant believe such stones are no more than territorial markers, altars, or monuments. In truth, these stones are tools of immense power. The runes set in each one tap into the channel and flow of the ley lines below. The site of the largest and most imposing stones are nodes with multiple ley lines converge. The circle has concentrated its martial might in these places. 
Druids have learned that the movement of the stars and planets are mystically tied to the ebb and flow of Cain's natural energies. By combining knowledge of ley lines with celestial conjunctions, these enact extraordinary potent rites. Many of the Order's most powerful mystical weapons, tools, and relics were created at ley line nodes during significant celestial events. And again, super easy to walk into a you know an open area, you see some rocks, you don't think anything of it, you start hearing rocks moving, warp wolves howling, and there's a problem. Communication and transportation. Through their secret rites, druids of the Circle of Obros can send and receive complex messages from one standing stone site to another simply by manipulating the energies that flows in the ley lines. It is a long-distance teleportation made possible at the major sacred rites. However, this is one of the greatest tools of the Circle. Traveling this way involves transformation through the complex and powerful ritual. The Traveler literally joins with the energies of Oberos at one site and then flows through the arteries of the world to emerge solid and whole at a different connected site, no matter the distance. The loss of key ley line nodes can interfere with this network, potentially making remote sites inaccessible. Because teleportation efforts can be dangerous and disruptive, they are most often left to specialists called wayfarers, consummate masters of ley line travel. Even senior blackclads rely on the coordination of powerful wayfarers to enact these rites, knowing they are tapping into tremendous mystical forces. The movement of a single wayfarer is a negligible strain on the network and can be simply done. Often messages from distant members of the order are conveyed directly by these individuals, who appear with a rumble of thunder and vanish in a flash of lightning. The potent and omnipotents also make regular use of this form to travel. Their vast experiences and subtle power allows them to do so without any strain to occur. Escorting larger numbers is much more difficult and requires exponentially greater power. Sending even a small group of dozen or so individuals across the moran requires coordinated effort and a great surge of natural energies. Teleporting hundreds or more at once can be initiated only by the greatest ley line conjunctions and requires dozens of senior wayfarers working together during a special celestial conjunction. Such a ritual can diminish the flow of power across the entire ley line network for weeks. Regardless of these limitations, the far-flung elements of the Circle of Obros can remain in close communication and coordinate precisely with each other because of the ley line network. Given sufficient cause, the Circle can send whole armies across the continent in a matter of moments, making it nearly impossible to anticipate their movements. There is always a cost for using such natural and chaotic powers, however, due to the elemental forces being tapped. Earthquakes and powerful storms are among the most common consequences, and the repercussions can be unpredictable. In 609 AR, the Blackclads reached the limit of the Leyline Network amid the circumstances that nearly resulted in the full manifestation of the Devourer Worm in the Bloodstone Marches. This strain was exasperated by pressure exerted by allies in Wormwood, the corruptive influence of the Dragonblight on the Ley Lines, and the effort of the Convergence of Cyrus to change the flows of many Ley Lines to intersections. The Eastern Dominion, in particular, was harmed by these events creating a weakening in the barrier between Cain and Urkane that led to a variety of supernatural after-effects. The Omnipotence enforced limits on their use of the ley lines so that repairs could be conducted, 
but the matter has still not been entirely settled, and the Circle of Oboros has sent its agents farther abroad in an effort to extend its network for greater stability. The ban on large-scale teleportation is still in effect, and it remains to be seen if these efforts will restore the key ley lines to their former vigor. The Power of Old Creation The Blackclads had long held the secret of crafting a semblance of life from base materials, animating powerful guardians from stone and wood. Wolds encompass a wide range of versatile constructs crafted from natural materials. Though very different from truly living creatures, wolds are effectively a unique type of war beast and are controlled by a similar mental connection. Some circle warlocks consider wolds far more reliable than the wild beasts that serve the order. As wolds are incapable of disobedience or animalistic compulsions, they do precisely what they are directed to do. Wolds are durable as stone, but lack the recuperative powers and vitality of living warbeasts. Crafting wolds is a long and laborious process, but in the end a warlock gains a potent extension of his will. Wolds serve a wide variety of purposes, from guarding sacred sites to escorting high-ranking blacklads to crushing the circle's enemies on the battlefield. In addition to the larger wolds, which require a substantial investment of time and energy to animate, the blacklads also make a use of smaller constructs like wolf words or wold stalkers, which can be made quickly and in great numbers. A single blackclad can direct a number of wold stalkers, each capable of powerful mystical range attacks, but not designed to withstand close melee. While such weapons will never entirely take place of armed soldiers, they serve as a valuable supplement. Similarly, the Circle's masters of earth magic can become adept to crafting tools like shifting stones and sentry stones that help defend the Circle's territories. Next chapter, Allies and Minions. The Blackclads count numerous people among their vassals and individual druids have cultivated relationships with almost every group in the wilds of Western Amoran. Over centuries, the druids have selectively ingratiated themselves with or bullied into compliance those they thought might be useful. In many instances, this relationship is one-sided. The circle requires its allies, in quotation, to fight on its behalf as payment for services the blackclads may have performed generations earlier, or to prevent some vague impending calamity. Some of these arrangements are little more than extortion. In other cases, the blackclads manipulate the beliefs of certain groups, so they think they share the same goals as the circle of Oberos, even if that's not actually true. The Circle has established a number of true, long-standing alliances that can be called upon in times of need. Rather than ruthless exploitation of these groups, the Blackclads instead use their pernicious power to aid and protect them, creating a mutual beneficial arrangement. The Tharn and the Wolfsworn are among their favored allies. Even in these relationships, the Blackclads strive wherever possible to get more from the arrangement than those who serve them. Some blacklads are diligent in honoring promises, others are more manipulative and treacherous. Though some harshly abused groups do choose to break with the druids, most do not, as the blacklads have fearsome reputations. Rather, tribal leaders learn to be more careful in future negotiations. Almost sounds like making a deal with the Kaazi. Cults of the Devourer Druids have a long tradition of taking advantage of isolated devourer cults deep in the wilds. Some of these groups see blacklads as emissaries of their god and therefore serve them willingly. This respect for the order creates a point of easy connection for blacklads in many remote towns and tribes. The more ardent of the cult, the easier for blacklads to make use of its membership. 
These chosen to be transformed into warp wolves, among the most powerful and ferocious of the circle's living war beasts, are often selected from among devourer cultists. This bestial state is hard on the mind, bringing a form of lasting madness that strips away all reason. While civilized mankind would view this as a curse, some of the worm's most fervent worshippers view it instead as the ultimate blessing. And warp wolves are nothing to joke about. You hear one howling at the night, it's probably time to move. Or they've already picked up your scent. Moving on to the Tharn. Tribes of Thorn are the most ardent allies of the Circle's disposal. They were once among the most feared warriors of Mulgar, the bloodthirsty alliance tribes who relished ritual consumption of their enemies' flesh. After the fall of Mulgar, their early blacklads cultivated relationships with Tharn and turned their tribe's strength against mankind's cities whenever possible. Tharn chiefs made promises to the blacklad that have been passed down through generations and reinforced by continuous contact with individual druids. More recently, the Tharn have come to owe the Blacklads an incalculable debt, as Mervana the Autumn Blade helped save their race from extinction by the Curse of the Ten Ills. This supernatural affliction, created by the Church of Morrow centuries before the greatly diminished Tharn fertility. Even beyond their salvation from this curse, the Tharn appreciate the opportunities given to them by the Circle of Oberos to pay reverence to their god making the bloody offerings in combat. Though arguably manipulated by the Blacklads, the ethos of Thorn is such that they cooperate willingly and enthusiastically to Circle's schemes. In common tradition among the Tharn to welcome any Blacklad and treat him with respect, and each Tharn tribe knows and supports at least one member of the Order. Tharn will support unfamiliar druids so long as doing so does not violate existing arrangements with others to whom they have sworn. The Tharn value strength and power above all else, however, which can affect their dealings with any individual blacklad leader. And they're very enthusiastic by paying with blood to their god in battle, because, uh, my goodness, the knives those people use can cut a man in half. Really put some chinks in some warcaster armor, and the repairs are not cheap. The Wolf Sworn. Since the dawn of the Order, the warriors of many devourer-worshipping tribes from the wilds have served the Circle. These tribes venerated the beast of all shapes and saw the Blacklad as its prophets and shamans. In time, these tribal warriors evolved into the Wolfsworn, a fighting force dedicated to the needs of Circle. When called by the Blacklads to battle, these warriors bear the brunt of the fighting. They are the most closely integrated and most numerous and most organized of the Circle's allies. The wolf swarms dwell in small communities scattered across the wilderness of western Amoran. When not called to war, individual members carry on normal lives and raise their families. They pass their traditions on to their children, training them to fight for the blacklads. When young members of these tribes reach maturity, they are formally introduced to their local blacklad to renew old oaths of fealty. In sizable villages, the wolf swarm do not reveal themselves as such to outsiders donning their armor and weapons only when the druids summon them. Sounds almost like those protectorate cultists just living life and then right when they're called by the church, boom, there they are. The most dedicated members of the organization worship the devourer worm and join in ritual worship together, taking the wolf as their predatory totem. Not all wolf sworn are equally devoted though, and some require compensation from the black lads for their service. The Wolf Sworn are skilled warriors versed in the arts of ambush, exploiting wilderness terrain, and tracking. They rely on weapons that can be easily crafted and distributed even in small villages. Cleft blade spears and swords are their preferred weapons, 
as well as the double crossbow favored by the Kost and the Skorov people of Kodor. They are frequently used to train warwolves, drawing in the stocks from the largest breeds found in Wormwall and in northern Kodorn Mountains. The most powerful and devoted wolfsworn are small, tight-knit tribes chosen to become warp-born skinwalkers. The first of these tribes were a Mulgar people who believed wearing the skins of predatory animals bestowed them with some kind of berserk strength. In time, the Blacklads were able to bring those beliefs into reality, enabling a true transformation into a bestial state akin to, but not distinct from, that adopted by the Tharn. Members of the tribes are given mystical elixirs similar to the ones used to create warp wolves, the fabrication of which is one of the Blacklads' closest secrets. Each drinker is forever changed, able to transform into a ferocious hybrid of wolf and human, and warp-worn are renowned for their savagery and their ability to endure wounds that would kill mere humans. And I've seen it. You cut them, and you can see it start healing in, on contact. It's ridiculous. The organizational structure of the wolf sworn is rooted in ancient tribal traditions, but it has evolved through their long centuries of service to the Blacklads. At the most basic level, they fight in packs led by the most senior and able among them, called Huntsmen. Veteran warriors can call out leaders in ritual combat challenges for positions of authority. If several packs live in a given area, they are coordinated by a master of the hunt who is the senior leader of the community or combined pack. Masters of the hunt typically control 20 to 50 warriors. Greater numbers are led by chieftains, who might command anywhere from 50 to several hundred warriors drawn from specific regions. Women are nearly as numerous as men among these fighting groups and are well represented in leadership ranks. Above chieftains are a small number of individual wolf lords, legendary figures of such stature that they are recognized across Western Amoran and can gather a sizable host of warriors from even far-flung tribes. You know the weirdest thing? I've fought many and you can't really tell them apart between male or female, but I suppose with wolves you can't really tell them apart either. Hmm. Weird. Although I could swear that I've seen a female warp wolf at least once. Other non-human tribes. The circle's use of tribal races exemplifies the essential callousness of black-clad diplomacy. Such allies including warriors drawn from Faro, Gatorman, Bogtrog, or Croak villages are generally seen as ready fodder for the circle's schemes. Historically, the Blacklads have entered into similar arrangements with Trolk and Creels, though recent strife has put an end to those practices in most areas. Most Trolkin are no longer willing to fight for the Druids, though that does not preclude the Blacklads from making use of their proximity for their own ends. In some cases, the Blacklads have even encouraged the settling of wilderness races near their holdings to serve as a natural buffer against mutual enemies. This policy helps keep human civilizations from reaching precious circle resources, or at least ensures that they must invest heavily in acquiring that wealth. As civilized armies undertake such campaigns, it is common for Blacklads to run interference, employing ambushes and guerrilla attacks to deter the invading armies. This serves both to preserve the wilds and to foster debt among the leaders of the tribal races, as the Druids will later ask them to repay the favor. There are several notable forest and mountain regions that have never been exploited by mankind almost entirely because of the tireless efforts of the Circle of Oberos. Sometimes Blacklads are more proactive in manipulating these non-human races, a druid who has an ear of a warlike chieftain finds it simple matter to point that leader and his warriors towards targets of the Blacklad's choosing, 
Often the wild folk are eager to serve the warriors in return for rights to the spoils or other boons. They are quite willing to risk their lives in battle so long as the reward is sufficient. I suppose the idea we'll work for food is good among every race in the Iron Kingdoms. Alrighty class, that concludes the history and the different factions within the Circle of Oberos. It gives us an appreciation for this scope that you'll run into these creatures, or not, because apparently they're just as hidden as they've always been. Alright, and as for the homework that I ask every class, please, if you're enjoying this podcast, share it with your friends, share it with the other gamers you work with at the shop. Knowing a little bit more lore about the games that you play always adds a little bit extra flavor to the the game matches so you can kind of get a feel for the characters on the board. And as always, thank you for showing up. I am Professor Castor and we'll see you in the next course. Also, a big thank you to Privateer Press for writing this lore and letting me read it. See you next time.